0: Well, good evening. Good evening, everyone. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Veritas, Iowa City. And um, I was thinking about even the name that God's people chose to use for this particular church family Veritas, uh, truth, right? It's a tr- translated in English, truth. And uh, holding out um, this community as truth speakers under the banner of truth, that we follow and believe truth. That's a high calling for all of us, right? And um, sometimes that is tested. Sometimes we don't know what is truth. How do we speak truth? What do we believe to be true? And one of those times um, that kind of comes at us culturally is When we have a lot of political upheaval and we live in the kind of country where we can have political upheaval and all of a sudden we're asking who should be leading us and how should we vote and all those kind of things. So as I was thinking about that, just as a a local church pastor, I was thinking, man, I'd love to have a night where we could just gather our people and say, here's how the Bible could guide us into walking in the truth. How do we think about being Christ followers when all this, you know, swirl of, Sometimes very strong opinions is all, all around us, so we were planning to have an equipping night like this in order to pursue some of those things. And then I got a, a call from my f- friend Philip, and he said, "Hey, um, we were wondering, is there any chance that you guys out there in Iowa would like to have Russell Moore come and talk about, I don't know, how to have things like courage and civility in the public square when you're thinking about things like the Iowa caucus was like?" Yeah, as a matter of fact, we would love to do that very thing. In fact, I would have had to do it, and I will gladly give way for somebody like Dr. Moore to be able to come and lead us. So, so it was just a really beautiful thing for me that God, I feel like, was going ahead of us. That was an idea that we had, and then for, for uh, Dr. Moore to be available and actually eager to come all the way, you know, to cold Iowa. Uh, not so bad tonight, so kind of nice. Thank you, Iowa, for not scaring him away. Um, but I just want to say as, as he comes up, you don't want to hear me anymore. Um, Dr. Moore has helped me in these past years. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm using hyperbole. I think I'm speaking accurately here. He has been used more to help guide not just my thinking, not what to believe, but how to believe, and even more than that, how to conduct myself As a believer, out in the marketplace of ideas, out in culture, through his writing, his teaching, even some personal interaction, he has helped me immensely. And so I don't know of a higher commendation to give to you, other than I have learned a tremendous amount from this man. And so I am eager uh, to be able to introduce to you Dr. Russell Moore. If you could come on up here, I'd love to pray for you, Dr. Moore. Um, Before you get going, will you bow with me as I pray for Dr. Moore tonight? Lord, every now and then, um, you raise up uh, spokespersons, people who who you've given a treasure of knowledge to, um, given them some insights, and it's not just for them. Though it's beautiful you give us those kind of gifts, you've not just given that to Dr. Moore, you've given him also the ability to turn around and teach others also. And so I pray for him, that he would have discernment and wisdom to learn from you, and that we would have ears to hear, that we would be learners. And so, God, as only your Holy Spirit could do, would you lead us? And guide us into all truth. We want, Lord, to know Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. There's no conflict in that. There was grace and truth fully expressed in Jesus. We want to be Jesus Christ followers and teach us how to do that tonight, Lord. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.
1: Well, if you would uh, turn your Bibles or access your Bible apps or whatever you have uh, with you, to 2 Timothy chapter two. 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'd like for us to start reading with verse 22 and read on down through the end of the chapter. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 22 through 26, and since this is the Word of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God? The Holy Spirit says this through the Apostle Paul, so... Flee YOUTHFUL PASSIONS AND PURSUE RIGHTEOUSNESS, FAITH, LOVE, AND PEACE, ALONG WITH THOSE WHO CALL ON THE LORD FROM A PURE HEART. HAVE NOTHING TO DO WITH FOOLISH, IGNORANT CONTROVERSIES. YOU KNOW THAT THEY BREED QUARRELS. AND THE LORD'S SERVANT MUST NOT BE QUARRELSOME, BUT KIND TO EVERYONE, ABLE TO TEACH, PATIENTLY ENDURING EVIL, CORRECTING HIS OPPONENTS WITH GENTLENESS. GOD MAY PERHAPS GRANT THEM REPENTANCE, LEADING TO A KNOWLEDGE OF THE TRUTH, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. May God bless his word to us. Tonight, you may be seated. You know, it's hard to think of an issue that might be more inflammatory and controversial in American life than that of guns and gun control. People have very, very strong feelings on on every side of that issue. And there was a, a journalist that I knew who sent me a picture that she had taken of a bumper sticker about guns uh, on a car in front of her. And the the bumper sticker was clearly a car from someone who was a Christian, had all sorts of Christian bumper stickers and Bible verses on it. But this bumper sticker said, if Jesus had had a gun, he would be alive today. (laughs) Now, Whatever your thoughts are on guns and gun control, my immediate reaction was Jesus is alive today. Uh, But the, the mentality that went behind this, and this journalist who was not a Christian was saying, is this something uh, that, that shows up a lot in your circles? And I said, no, that's not, uh, that's not something I've ever seen before. But the, the argument here had Jesus really as a means to an end to get to what was really important in that context, which was the argument which could show up on on any side of that issue or any other. But as I was thinking about that, the more I thought, you know, actually, she ought to be less concerned about that particular bumper sticker and more concerned about bumper stickers generally. Because there was a study that was done by Colorado State University several years ago that was looking into road rage, Uh, people who explode into uh, losing their temper on the highways. And they were trying to find out how do you predict whether or not someone's going to be likely uh, to be given over to road rage. And what they found was there is no predictor based upon the uh, age or make or model of the car. There is no predictor based upon the age or the socioeconomic class of the driver of the car the only predictor that they could find is the presence of bumper stickers. (laughs) If there are bumper stickers on the car, the car is more likely to be driven by someone who will have a problem with road rage. And what they found was it doesn't matter what the bumper stickers say. It doesn't matter if it is vote pro-life or vote pro-choice. doesn't matter if it's practice random acts of kindness or my kid can beat up your honor student. Uh, it doesn't matter if it is Jesus saves or I was born just fine the first time. Uh, Whatever the bumper sticker is, it doesn't matter at all. The only thing that matters is whether or not there's a bumper sticker. And what they found was the more bumper stickers that are on the vehicle, the more likely the person is to be given over to road rage. And the, the scholars there at Colorado State said, we can only speculate as to why that is. We don't know from the data. But the speculation is because the sort of person who puts a bumper sticker on his or her car really isn't intending to persuade people. There are very few people who have ever changed their minds about anything on the basis of simply seeing a bumper sticker in front of them. Instead, the bumper sticker is more about self-identity and self-expression to say, this is the sort of person I am. And so they speculated the sort of people that has a need to express himself or herself to random strangers on the road uh, is more likely then to be given over to frustration. Now, the interesting thing to me about all of that is that that's not actually just talking about some cars that are on the road. We live in a time where everything has become a bumper sticker. And every aspect of human life is about self-expression and about who we are and about speaking to each other about who I really am and how I want to be identified. That's one of the reasons why American culture has become so toxic. It's one of the reasons why people are screaming at each other cybernetically all of the time and why you have neighborhoods and households and Thanksgiving dinners that often are filled with such tension. And why we sometimes don't even know how to relate to one another, not just about the really important ultimate issues of faith in Christ and its alternatives, but even on those more secondary issues where we find our definition of we somewhere in terms of a cultural marker, or a political marker, or an economic marker, and those who are on this side of the marker are good, those who are on the other side of the marker are bad, and so we're in this constant sort of Darwinian struggle all of the time. That is not just a bad way to live in a country, and a non-sustainable way to live in a neighborhood. That has implications for the way that we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you notice this letter that we just read uh, some moments ago from 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy on the ground planting churches uh, there in Ephesus, and Paul is talking repeatedly in these letters about the problem of timidity, uh, about stirring up courage in Timothy. He says, don't... Don't let that flame that is within you be quenched. He says, treat your your stomach. Uh, It seems that he has some stomach ailments, maybe that are coming uh, with with stress, with the, the burdens of ministry. Be a good soldier, Timothy. Don't give up, he's saying to him. Don't let people despise your youth. So he's saying to Timothy repeatedly, fight, fight, fight. Fight the good fight of faith. And then he comes to this section in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and he says, do not be quarrelsome. Seems like he's saying something contradictory. Fight, 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 stand for truth, stand for truth, stand firm, be a soldier, don't be quarrelsome. That is not a contradiction at all. Because when Paul here is talking about kindness and the way that the Christian lives out a life of kindness, that is not a break from the fighting. That is how you fight. Now, there's a a lot of talk about civility even uh, up here on the screen. I hate that word. I hate the word civility because civility is too low of a bar. For the people of Jesus Christ. Civility means that you don't attack each other, and you're able to maintain a, a sense of, of bare minimum dignity. The life of Christ is calling us to something actually more than that, which is kindness, fruit of the Spirit, where Paul says that in the life of the Christian, the way that the life of Jesus is lived out by the Spirit is one that manifests itself not just in a a neutralizing of toxicity, but in an active kindness toward all people. So you'll notice what Paul is saying here. The Lord's servant should not be quarrelsome. The Lord's servant should show kindness To everyone. Now, here's what is distinctively different about this. This is not just a kind of Darwinian show kindness to those who are part of your particular tribe. Show kindness to the people that you need. The people that you depend on. The people who are like you. He says, show kindness to everyone. Why? He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. And he says, Timothy, do not get yourself involved in foolish, ignorant controversies. Because they lead to quarrelsomeness. Now, notice what Paul is saying here. Often we assume that a lot of what we're arguing about is about the issues. And the issues lead to sort of explosions. When in reality, what the Holy Spirit is saying here is that often it's the other way around. Often instead, it is a sense of a quarrelsome spirit, a fighting spirit that is looking for reasons to have the fight, looking for reasons to distinguish myself from you and to distinguish you from me. And he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome and the Lord's servant must not be distracted by these foolish, ignorant sorts of controversies that take place. He says, instead, God has given to you a mission. God has given to you an objective to carry the word of Christ all over the place, which means you must stand for truth. You must stand for Christ but don't get yourself involved in all of these extraneous ways of sort of cathartically expressing your anger or your hostility and call that Christian courage. He says, because it often simply leads to quarrelsomeness, and a Christian is not someone who is looking for an argument. Well, why? Why is that the case? The reason that is the case is for a number of of reasons that Paul uh, lays out here. One of those is a sense of the diminishing of the self. So, notice what he says. The Lord's servant must be willing to endure evil. One of the reasons that we have such a toxic culture around us is because we're not actually often having debates about issues. We're often having debates about ourselves. And so when someone says to me, I think that you're ridiculous because you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, or as someone said to me very recently, I think that Jesus is your imaginary friend. My thought is, actually, if I were coming up with an imaginary friend, my imaginary friend would be a lot less irritating to me than Jesus is with the sorts of demands that he makes upon my life. I think I could come up with one that would be easier uh, to to deal with. But my, my second reaction is to say, how dare you? Because the issue is not that I am defending Jesus. Jesus doesn't need me to defend him. It is that you are saying that I am stupid. You are saying that I am evil. You are saying that the kind of people that I belong to are stupid and evil, and therefore, you and I are going to fight. But the life of the Christian is one that is able to personally endure evil, willing to be, as Jesus says, insulted, Willing to be thought poorly of. Why? Because our objective is not cheaply to win an argument. Our objective is to reach people. Which is why Paul says here, there is a bigger vision involved. He says, if you see and you recognize what's really going on in serious spiritual stakes... What you see is that we are not dealing with, when it comes to the gospel, people who are our enemies. We are dealing with people, Paul says, who are prisoners of war. Held captive by the devil in order to do his will. Now, there are sometimes, I had a friend who's not a believer who heard me talking about this. And he says, well, I think that's terrible to say. Because what you're suggesting is that there are people who are held in bondage to the devil. And that would would lead people toward demonizing one another. And I said, no. What Paul is saying here is actually the reverse of that. Because the gospel maintains that every single person without exception, except for Jesus of Nazareth, is naturally in that condition. Every single person. So when you are dealing with somebody who is hostile towards you because of your faith, you are not dealing with somebody who has evaluated you personally and who is striking out at you personally. You are instead talking to someone if our gospel is true, and I believe that it is, You're talking to someone who is in the exact same situation you were in. Which is, as Jesus says, the light comes into the world. And what do we do when we initially see the light? We wince. We we draw back from that. We feel exposed by that. We do what Adam and Eve did in the garden and we want to hide. We hide behind different things we find different things to hide behind. Some people hide behind a kind of uh, secular atheism, and some people hide behind some sort of ideology, and some people hide behind a kind of religion. We hide behind all sorts of different things, but the issue is always there, which is one of spiritual warfare, and if we understand how spiritual warfare works then we understand that the people with whom we are doing battle or the forces with whom we are doing battle are not people who disagree with us. Not flesh and blood at all, but principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And how do we wrestle against those principalities and powers in the heavenly places? Not with superior rhetorical firepower not with humiliating people in a Facebook debate, but with the voice of Jesus Christ presented in the open proclamation of the truth. And we truly believe and have the confidence that anybody, by the grace of God, can be persuaded to see and to embrace the gospel. One of the reasons that people are so mean and quarrelsome with one another in American life right now is not because people are too confident in their positions, but because they are not confident enough. When there is a lack of confidence in terms of who you are or what you believe You're going to supplement that with a lot of frenetic quarreling. But how is it that you and I were brought into the family of God? Paul says it was with the kindness of God leading us to repentance. The voice of Christ speaking to us, and that is a voice that comes with confidence. So if you just look at the New Testament and you see how remarkably decaffeinated Jesus seems when everyone else is freaking out. The boat's capsizing. People are rejecting them in Samaria. And James and John says, we've got an idea. Call down fire from heaven and blow this place up. I understand that mentality. And Jesus just turns around and says, what are you talking about? Let's continue on to the next time. Standing in front of Pontius Pilate and Jesus is not flinching at all. He is calm when everyone else is panicking. Simon Peter is taking out his sword and cutting off ears. And yet when everyone else is sleeping or calm, Jesus is sweating blood in anguish. Why? Because he has a bigger picture of what is taking place, and he has an understanding of where the real problem is and where the problem is not. If you you divide people up into the people who are Christians or who are likely to be Christians and the people who are not, and are not likely to become Christians, then you have something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says there is nobody likely to be a Christian. If you market test this stuff, and if people actually understand what the gospel is, no one seeks after it, Romans chapter 3. No one wants it at all. How does it come about only through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, which is a grace that comes with confidence, a kind of confidence that then is able to calmly say to the woman at the well in Samaria who wants to get into arguments about where worship should be done. And Jesus instead says very calmly to her, Woman, where is your husband? Go get your husband and bring him here. Come here. He speaks to her with a kind of calmness here because he is on mission. And the New Testament does this consistently to say, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you are to speak with a different sort of force on the inside than you do on the outside. So, the Apostle Paul is able to say, when I say to you, don't associate with somebody who's involved in unrepentant immorality, I am not talking about, he says, those who are out in the world. Otherwise, you would have to come out of the world. I'm talking about the ones who bear the name of brother or sister. What do I have to do with judging those who are outsiders? What we tend to do, though, is to flip that and to do the exact reverse. And we speak with a lot of force and tumult and judgment toward those who are on the outside of the people of God, those who are, who are not here in front of us, and then those who are the sorts of sins that are more popular with us Whoever us is, whatever our tribe is, we speak to those in much more muted tones, if at all. That's the reverse of what the scripture teaches. Paul says, don't be quarrelsome, don't be Frantic, maintain the integrity of the people of God and maintain the gospel confidence that comes with understanding and knowing that Jesus is going to build his church, which means that if you and I are living in a time where everybody is wanting to find their identity in cultural movements and political movements and labels and tribes and herds and all of those things, you and I belong to something different. You and I are joined to the body of Christ, joining heaven to earth, which means what we have to offer to the world is not more sarcastic Facebook memes. What we have to offer to the world actually are the very things that the world thinks are the worst aspects of Christianity. And those are the things that shape and form a life in the spirit that exhibits kindness. So you, you think about it for a minute. What, what are the things that if you went and talked to your secular Christian skeptical neighbor and said, what do you hate about christianity one of the things that somebody's going to say is judgment there are some people who might not know any other scripture at all who know judge not lest you be judged actually the the problem that we have is not that there is too little judgment in american life it's that there is the wrong kind what is happening When we don't have an understanding of a judgment day for ourselves and for everyone else, we must all give an account before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul says. Then what ends up happening is that we are constantly tyrannized by all of these little judgment days that take place all the time, which manifests itself primarily in what does whatever the group of people that I want to be judged by, what do they think of me? That's one of the reasons why you have very few people who are able to say in American life right now, you know, here's my position on this, but I can see why someone would think something differently. Or I agree with these people on these six things, These people on these four things. People don't do that. And why? Because you want to belong to these people or to belong to these people in totality, and if they change their minds on issue four, so do you. Why? Because you've got a judgment day in front of you with these people. It shows up in the way that there are many people who are living their lives on social media the way that a politician does with daily polling, polling tracking numbers, looking at their approval ratings with the people in their lives except without an election day in sight. That is an exhausting and debilitating way to live, and it ends up turning you into a frantic, anxious, often angry, mean sort of person, a small sort of person. But if you have an understanding, I am going to give an account before the judgment seat of Christ. I don't have to prove myself on everything. I don't have to justify myself to everybody. I don't have to correct everybody who's wrong about everything all the time, because that weight is not on my shoulders. There actually is a day when that takes place, judgment. Second thing would be exclusivity of truth. There are many people who would say, well, if you, if you have an understanding that truth is real and truth is objective, then you're going to end up with people who are meaner to one another and in more of a conflict with one another. That's not our problem right now. Our problem is that truth is a secondary thing for us. The primary issue is identification with whatever that tribe is, and we create the truth to fit that. So as Marilyn Robinson from Iowa City here put it, A society is moving toward dangerous ground when loyalty to the truth is seen as disloyalty to some supposedly higher interest. As Christians, as people who are shaped and formed by the Word of God, we ought to be the people who believe because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that our lives are being shaped and formed by him, increasing us toward the truth, increasing us toward, as Paul says here, peace and and righteousness and holiness instead of the kind of combination that we often have of immorality and judgmentalism. Sometimes even people who in their immorality are projecting that immorality out onto supposed enemies on the outside and attacking it vociferously. That's not what we've been called to do. And the final thing is evangelism. Evangelism. There are some people who think, well, Christians think that everybody else is going to hell. And so when they share the gospel, that gospel is coming from a place of arrogance. There are a lot of arrogant Christians, but they are not arrogant Christians because of evangelism. As a matter of fact, what I have noticed is the people who are the most evangelistic, not the people who talk about evangelism though, but the people who are actually sharing the gospel are the kindest people toward those who disagree with them. Why? Because they understand and they know how the gospel actually works. They understand that they're dealing with wounded people, just as everybody is wounded, protecting those wounds as all of us do outside of Christ. And they understand that the grace of God is available to everyone. So the person who may be the most hostile to me right now very well may be my future brother or sister in Christ or may well be the person who will lead my future children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren to faith in Jesus Christ. That's how the New Testament gospel works. So, when someone will say, well, who's the next Billy Graham? Where's the next Billy Graham? My response is often to say, the next Billy Graham may well be passed out drunk in a frat house at the University of Iowa right now the next great evangelist and missions leader might be running an abortion clinic right now. The next great movement evangelist in the world might be in a terrorist camp right now plotting the destruction of Christians just as the Apostle Paul was doing prior to encountering Jesus Christ if we understand that about people, then we don't give up on people. And we continue, just as Jesus does, speaking the truth, correcting opponents, Paul says, but not correcting them on everything, not correcting them on foolish secondary things, correcting them toward the gospel of Jesus Christ, but with kindness and with gentleness, why? Because we have a mission that is primary. And that means that the kindness that we show to those who disagree is not weakness. It's weakness in a Darwinist worldview. If what you have to have is a pretense of power. But if the power that you have is the power that comes with a crucified Christ that doesn't offer domination, doesn't offer humiliation, but says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That means that we're willing to bear some insults. We're willing to be thought poorly of. We're willing to have our motives second-guessed without having to constantly justify ourselves. And instead, patiently, persistently, courageously, kindly bearing witness, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room. I pray for... Uh, maybe even some people who come to mind in their in their minds right now. Uh, there may be some people in this room who have parents who are very hostile to them because of their faith, or maybe people who have children who are very hostile to them because of their faith, or maybe people who have coworkers or neighbors. Maybe there are some people in this room, Lord, who are tempted toward timidity, and maybe there are some in this room who are tempted toward quarrelsomeness. Lord, would you help us to see where our specific areas of vulnerability would be so that we can bear witness with kindness and gentleness and Christlikeness and courage to the outside world? Would you show us those things, and would you conform us into the image of Christ? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: So it's uh, my privilege to be able to uh, have Dr. Moore join me up here. And uh, I, well, one, I want to thank you for immediately just taking us to the Bible. That's an example right there that we needed to see that in this discussion you wanted us to be anchored in the truth. so I appreciate that right off, right off the bat, Dr. Moore. I'm gonna give you guys a chance to ask a few questions about how that should land, what should that look like in our world and in our decision making. But I wanna take first crack at that. But before, I've got, I've got a handful of questions, but could you give these guys just an idea? You, you are seen by many of us as a great thinker, a great reader, a great translator of some things. You're also a human with a family. Can you give just a little bio of who you are, your family, and even how God maybe even brought you to do this crazy thing that you're doing of leading the ERLC? Just to...
1: I don't know that the answer to that question, <laughs> but my family, uh, my wife, uh, Maria, and I have been married 25 years this year, and we have five sons, uh, 18, 18, 14, 12, and 7. Uh, so, uh, we, we have a a busy
0: house. You do have a busy house. I just love when you start talking about your family because, uh, again, it, it humanizes you to many of us who just see you as a great spokesperson and you have to actually go home and. Figure out how to bring peace in a family. Uh,
1: yeah. To... Hey, as a matter of fact, as recently as five minutes before uh, we got up here, <laughs> Yeah, which I won't go into.
0: Oh, we'd love it if you would. But, but no, no. <laughs> Yeah. My,
1: but my son knows who he is. I'll just put it that way. We'll deal with that when I get home. Oh,
0: that's good. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you. Um, often there are these sensational things that come through the news feeds and everything is breaking news and everything yeah. is sensational. Right help me out, help these guys out, how do you filter that? How do you keep yourself from having the chicken little sky is falling about every move, every sound bite? How do you walk through this life? Because you have to hear it all, right? Because you have to often, a microphone gets in your face, right. how to respond to it. Right. Help us out.
1: Well, I mean, part of that has to do with if you're getting your news primarily from social media or cable uh, television, mm. then you're, you're going to fall into that because there's a motive for everything to be uh, breaking news and everything to be monumentally important. And you, know, you, can, you can see if you, if you just take a break from social media for yeah. a couple of weeks, uh, what you'll find is the first week, you'll feel like I'm missing out on everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second week, you'll realize, I'm actually not missing out on almost anything
0: yeah.
1: uh, here when it comes to news. Maybe right. other There are all, all sorts of reasons to use social media, but in terms of news consumption, that's not a good one.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, And, and so the other issue is, I think sometimes we fall into the mentality that the most important things and the most dangerous things are the things that are being debated right now all over the place. That's rarely the case. Instead, usually the things that are being debated all over the place are usually downstream from decisions that have already been made. The most dangerous things are the things that you're not thinking about at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Either because they're right around the corner Or because you've kind of already accommodated to those things. Yes. Yeah. So, for instance, I, I think about this all the time. When I was a seminary student, I was uh, preaching in Indiana, in a very rural area. I was driving several hours back to where I lived, and I stopped to get gas. I was getting gas, and I saw this group of people across the street. It looked like a block party going on or something. And so I said to the guy who was standing there, I said, "What's going on over there? Where are all those people?" He said, well, he said, that is an adult movie theater that has opened up uh, over there across the street. He said, the people in this community don't like it. Mm. So, so what they're doing is they're taking shifts, almost like a neighborhood watch, and they're over there taking pictures of every license plate uh, and putting them up in the, uh, in the store in the middle of the community because they're wanting to put this place out of business. Uh, and I went on, and the more I thought about that over the years... The more I thought, you know, I don't know whatever happened with that particular Mm -hmm. adult movie theater. But what I do know is that what was right around the corner uh, from that moment was a digital revolution that was going to make pornography not just ubiquitous, but it was also going to be able to hook in people who would never go into. Uh, an adult movie theater on the side of an interstate because right. they don't want to think of themselves as that kind of person. Yeah. But they can have an illusion of anonymity and they can have this sense of, I'm not actually doing this. this is, I'm just sort of being <laughs> drifted along. So if you, if you don't see what's happening in terms of the technology and if you don't see what's already present in the human heart, then you're actually not going to be able yeah. to see what's in front of you, and what's happening to you. Mm. So often the sort of level of frenetic yep. uh, activity is inverse to the importance of the issue. Mm. Mm.
0: Okay, so put that into practice, okay? Mm. Somebody comes up to you, as they have to me this week, and says, did you see that that big fast food chain just changed who they're going to be giving their money to? And yeah. it, What do you think about that? Right. How do you respond to that? Because those are the questions that we get. Those are the, what do you think about? Yeah. Well, I
1: think think there is a place for, I don't know yet. (laughs) Uh, And and that's not something that we uh, want to say uh, very often, but to say, I don't know yet. So uh, what what I did is to, um, when I start getting those questions is to say, okay, well, first of all, well, I ended up talking to the folks there, mm. uh, at, at, Chick-fil-A. Uh, but, but even if I hadn't had the ability to do that, to say, I'm going to look and see, uh, from multiple different sources, exactly what is happening yep. here, yep. because there are times when, uh, what we do is to, is to immediately attack. Yep. Jump or up. to immediately defend right. when we actually don't know what is, what is taking place. Wow. So, what so I, you can
0: say, I don't know.
1: Yes. What, <laughs> I, what I did was I wrote an article that I intentionally wrote before I knew exactly what was going on. Nice. I, I wanted to write the article before because what I wanted to say was, I don't know, but let's assume the worst case scenario, what does that mean? Hmm. And if it is the worst case scenario, uh, do you really need a fast food chain to prop up your Christian faith? No. (laughs) So the worst thing that could possibly happen here is you've got a fast food chain uh, that is is doing to other Christian ministries what people were doing to them previously. Right. Right. And, okay. and I said, I don't know if that's what's happening here. Right. But if it is, that's the worst case scenario. Yep. And so the, wh- how should we then respond if that's the case? And I laid out, I don't think that, you know, angry boycotts are the way to, to do it. Um, but I, I think sometimes just stepping back and saying, I'm not exactly sure what's taking place mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not just this, just the thing with sort of big news issues, yep. but maybe even more importantly, when it has to do with the sort of interrelational things that can take place in a workplace or they yeah. can take place yep. in a church. Uh, you know, there, there's things that if you've been around enough, you see those things showing up over and over and over again where people can have strategies of undermining one another while still making themselves seem like a good person. Yep, yep. You know, exactly. so what you want to do is to sort of just plant some doubt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, people are concerned. You know, you can do that in a church. People are concerned. There are a lot of people that are really uh, upset about uh, the, the length of distance between each of these chairs in the church building. Right. Well, if you do that enough, then right. eventually people are going to be concerned right. about it. <laughs> right. You know, but, so. uh, but, but that is not the sort of unity and the bond of peace totally. and that could happen in a workplace it can happen in a neighborhood it can happen in a, in a community It can happen uh in, in all sorts of places yeah. so i think the general sort of mentality that we as christians ought to have is oddly enough i think probably summed up in an old grateful dead song touch of gray it's even worse than it appears but it's all right so, uh, you know, the, the, the reality in the world and the reality with me is worse right. than what I even know Right. Uh, in this post-fall world. And yet, Jesus is alive. Yeah. The Spirit is at work. Amen. I will build my church. And, and so th- there's not this sense of... Uh, anguish and, and mm-hmm. constant hand wringing, mm-hmm. either over my life personally, or just in terms of uh, in terms of the world around me. Mm. It's good. It's
0: good. Okay, Th- these are questions that I'm facing, so I'm not projecting on these guys. This is for mm-hmm. me. How do I not just obey but honor a president who, uh, by character profile, wars against many of the things that I teach and preach and believe, yet when it comes to some different policy making, some, some movement going on policy wise, I would commend, help me navigate that. How am I supposed to think about that? How am I supposed... I can't be dismissive of character. Mm-hmm. I have to also commend, one, just honor because of his office. right? And also see the good, see mm-hmm. good policy. Help me out. How do I think about that?
1: Well, I think the, the way to do that is to uh, constantly be praying for, as the scripture says, kings and all who are in authority mm-hmm. without belonging to any of them. Mm. Uh, you know, people out in the world are constantly looking for a Messiah. Yeah. Uh, that they can say, this is our guy, yeah. right or wrong, 100% in everything. Uh, this we have a Messiah. He's feeling fine. <laughs> and so we don't need one. Uh. So that ought to give us the freedom to pray for the uh, well-being and the wisdom and the success in every good thing. Yeah. Of anybody yeah. who's in any place of, of authority, even if it's not someone that we would have that we would have put there. Mm. And so uh, I think a, a rule of thumb that, that I have is to um, sort of train myself to pray uh, I have a tendency to want to pray in sort of passive aggressive kinds of ways based upon what I think about the person I'm praying for. (laughs) And so what I have to do is to say, I'm going to, when I'm dealing with a particular person that I'm praying for that I don't have esteem for, Mm -hmm. whoever that might be in whatever situation, Mm -hmm. I'm going to sort of discipline myself Mm. to go, above and beyond hmm. to pray for, uh, success in every good thing. Hmm. You want to pray for success in everything for anybody. Right. Uh, you know, I, my wife, I pray, doesn't pray that for me. Right. Cause there are all sorts of things that I would succeed in that would be terrible. Mm-hmm. So what I want her to pray for me is to say, uh, hmm. h- bless everything that you would have him to do and keep him from doing stupid stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think we ought to pray That's that uh, we ought to pray that for uh, for for yes. one another. Here. That's good.
2: That's good.
0: <laughs> okay, I'm going to take you off the the hot seat a little bit and just ask. I, when I see you referencing different people, I think we we draw from some of the same wells. I see you kind of leaning into Kuyper and Francis Schaeffer. Who who are some of those old dead guys that have shaped? how you think about these things in 2019 right now today, who who are some of those strong voices? Well, I'll tell you
1: one that, uh, that was really instrumental in my life and probably saved my life was C.S. Lewis Mm -hmm. because, uh, I was somebody who came to a real crisis of faith at the age of 15, uh, where I, I started to see things in Bible belt, uh, American Christianity, uh, that were horrifying, Mm. uh, you know, both in terms of uh, racism and domestic violence and um, uh, sin covered up depending mm. on the power of the person who had it, you yeah. know, all of those sorts of things, it led me to a place where I started to think, wait a minute, is, is all of this that I've been taught all my life really just a kind of hood ornament yeah. On Southern culture or American culture or a political agenda or something else. And if that's the case, that means that there is no ultimate meaning to the universe. It really Mm. threw me into a, a real crisis. Thankfully, I had read the Chronicles of Narnia as a little kid so I could recognize the name C.S. Lewis on the spine of Mere Christianity. And reading Mere Christianity is what the Lord used hmm. to, to sort of remind me that the kingdom of God is bigger than whatever it was that I was seeing around me at the wow. time. And the, the thing that, that got to me was not so much what C.S. Lewis was saying. It was how he was saying it. Yeah. It was very evident he was not trying to sell me something. Yeah, uh, He yeah. was bearing witness to something uh, hear something that was real and
0: authentic, and so wow. I have a I have a very big place in my heart for. Wow! Seasons. So you can can you name drop say three more? Just who else has had that? Maybe not that level. Maybe he was at a critical juncture. Yeah. But a couple other key voices. Yeah. Maybe that- there was
1: um. Th- there's a, a guy named Irenaeus of Lyon early, and he he studied with a guy who studied with the guy who studied with the Apostle John, mm-hmm. uh, and he was somebody who was living in a really really. Uh, Pre Christian yeah. uh, sort of culture and, and had all sorts of tensions and, and problems within the church and faithfully bore witness to Christ. He has shaped a lot of, wow. a lot of the way that I see things as well.
0: Wow. Yeah. It's amazing how there's nothing new under the sun, right? Those crises really of faith. There's really not. Is no. what's
1: there's really not. going well, on right and, now. And, and even going back further than that, I mean, I had somebody, um, I was talking to somebody um, recently who's really getting cynical. Yeah. because he's seen a lot of people that he trusted uh, within the church, moral failures, yeah. and you know, all of these, these sorts of things. And he's saying, you know, I'm just really, really growing cynical. And I said, well, the, the great thing is Jesus didn't hide any of this from us. Right. Je- Jesus told us from the very beginning, here's the stuff that's going to, that you're going to see and that you're going to deal with. And then the examples that Jesus gives us uh, in the book of Acts and in the epistles that follow are not of these idyllic kinds of churches mm. that we can say, if only we were in Corinth, yeah. <laughs> where everybody loves each other. and Oh, oh yeah. Okay, wait, wait. This is this is this was not hidden Pure from of the us. driven yeah. snow that church yeah. in Corinth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. I new. sometimes see churches named Corinth. Yeah. Methodist or Corinth Baptist. What did I think? Yeah. Wow.
2: That's Bold. either a lot of confidence or
0: maybe oh, not. Oh. So the first time that uh, I saw you and told you, hey, I'm going to be moving to Iowa City, your first immediate right out of your mouth was, oh, well, then we've got to go to the Iowa Writers Workshop. and yeah. We've got to talk to Marilyn Robinson. Yeah. Um, what's your fascination with Marilyn Robinson as an author and then the Iowa Writers Workshop that she worked at? I mean, what... What, well, that, what, what that, that writer's
1: workshop it goes back, a, I think, 1936 or 1938. Flannery O'Connor mm-hmm. was part of that writer's workshop. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of people that have meant a lot to me uh, over the years have, have either been faculty members there or have been students there and have been taught there. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about uh, Marilyn Robinson is she is able to uh, show and to demonstrate human nature. Yeah. And, and, and to show and demonstrate the nature of believing that is not caricatured, and it's also not airbrushed. Mm. So it kind of shows that she has three uh, novels, the Gilead uh, trilogy, about a, a pastor in Iowa and then, then others that are uh, around him. Uh, but it really is beautiful uh, mm. books. I, and I, I, I often think about things that she writes Um, that that sort of come out of nowhere. For instance, this pastor that she writes about, uh, Reverend Ames, one of the things he says is that every person that he encounters, the question that comes to his mind is, what is God asking of me Mm. in this encounter? Mm. And, you know, that's one of the things that I have to constantly be reminding myself of because sometimes you can feel like some conversation that you're having is random. Yeah. And, well, I don't have, really have time yeah. for this. Uh, and yet say, wait a minute, this has been providentially ordered. Mm. What does God want from me yeah. in this interaction? Mm. And so that's, that's been really yeah. helpful to me. I don't get there as often as I would want, but right. I aspire to that, and she's mm. helped me with that.
0: Most of you are Iowans. If you have not yet encountered Marilyn Robinson and uh, her her trilogy of novels, especially Gilead, I would, again, strongly recommend those. I don't even remember how I got my first copy well, and, and read one, it. You know? One of the things
1: that's good, too, about that is she gives you the perspective of sort of this old, uh, thoroughly Christianized pastor. yeah. And then uh, the, the second book, Lila, is about this woman who is coming into a church uh, setting out of a completely different yeah. uh, sort of world. And She has this uh, moment where this young woman, Lila, she's starting to read the Bible for the first time. And the pastor says to her, what are you reading? And she says, Ezekiel. And he says, I, you know, I, I like Ezekiel, but <laughs> Ezekiel's kind of scary. It's your, it's uh,
2: your, it's uh, your first dive in here. Yeah, into this well, it's your first it. <laughs> time in here.
1: but." Uh, but she says, no, exact, that's actually what I need because I'm coming out of a world that's very scary. Yeah. And, and this is showing me why and, and showing me what's actually going on there. Mm-hmm. And I, I think about that uh, that sort of thing. Often.
0: Oh, yeah. So beautiful. I had a, a student in a class where they were going to run introducing themselves and his name was John Ames. Ah, and yeah. I kept thinking, why do I love that guy already? Yeah. What is so endearing about him? And then later yeah. like, oh wait, you're my favorite character. Anyway, <laughs> you have no idea why I'm suddenly looking at you with these endearing eyes, like, just tearing up. <laughs> never met. Um, we're going to let you guys ask some questions. Uh, and so uh, there's a couple of microphones. Some, uh, some guys are going to come up. Um, so just as they're, and then we got a couple books to give away. In fact, Hey, Ryan, bring the, bring the books up so that I can see what you guys are handing out. So I think what we're going to do is the first four people, right, that um, ask questions are going to be given, is it Onward? Yep. Oh, so can you tell these guys uh, about these
1: books? Well, that, that one is Onward. It's just about how to engage uh, in a, what seems like a post-Christian uh, context without losing the gospel uh, conviction. And the other one is a little gospel for life that explains religious liberty and what religious liberty is in my
0: They're both tremendous. I really think as far as taking what Dr. Moore brought to us from the scriptures and spending more pages helping us to land that in our lives, I, I can't think of a better book, honestly, than Onward to help you bridge that gap. So that's... Uh, I'd really recommend that. So right before we go to those questions, I've got one more for you, okay? And then okay. Ryan and Rebecca are gonna hit it up with, uh, sorry, you're just eye candy right now, Ryan, that's <laughs> all. are um Refugees. Uh-huh. I don't wanna bring up just immigration in general. Yeah. Refugees specifically, as a Christian, there's just a lot of Bible about yeah. refugees. Help me think about how am I to think about not just the idea, of refugees, but then when it comes to policy and candidates, and what, what should that look like? What should be my impulse when it comes to the area of refugees? Well, uh,
1: you know, the Bible doesn't outline how many refugees should be in any given community, how uh, much immigration or how little immigration should take place. Uh, those are all sorts of things that we, we sort of argue prudentially, uh, but the Bible does tell us how we are to view immigrants and refugees themselves mm,
2: uh, yeah.
1: as, as people. And that's one of the things we live in a time where uh, typically you have uh, someone who comes into your community sometimes fleeing very, very difficult situations. Sometimes the community reacts to them mm-hmm. with a sense of fear and, and, and stigmatizing of mm-hmm. that person. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a friend who uh, came to the United States from Iran. His mm. parents were coming from Iran. And this was right around the time of the Iranian hostage crisis. And so he had children in his community uh, calling him little Ayatollah and terrorist and, uh, and all of those sorts of things. But he had a teacher who saw him as a human being, mm-hmm. saw him as a little boy, loved him, mm-hmm. gave him a Bible, came to faith in Christ. Yes. He's now a pastor of one of the largest churches in Texas mm-hmm. uh, right now. Uh, there are a lot of people like him yeah. uh, who are out there who have who have lived through things that we can't even imagine, mm-hmm. and uh, and frankly, one of the things that's taking place is that some of the sharpest evidences of revival are taking place in churches made up of people who are fleeing yes. very very difficult situations. Yes. Not just in the United States, but but all uh, all around the world, mm. and so if we react to those people with fear and loathing, yeah. uh, what we're doing is not only failing to love neighbor, but we're also cutting ourselves off from uh, ways that God is, mm-hmm. is blessing us Yes. in, yes. in terms of our, our brothers and sisters in Christ and
0: maybe future brothers and sisters. So, so I get, right, that like that story, if I encounter a refugee, if mm-hmm. I encounter a new neighbor yeah. that needs my help, there's that. So then, how do I think about that though, when it comes to the ballot box and those kind of things? How do, how does that transfer then into thinking more broadly? There he is right before me, but now I've got to think about how do we handle this more systemically? Do, yeah. Well, well,
1: uh, that's going to depend upon your uh, level of responsibility uh, and your ability to make those sorts of decisions. Mm-hmm. So, what you do is deal with whatever is in front of you at the moment. Mm-hmm. So when you have in, in Luke chapter ten, when uh, when the the man is beaten on the side of the road, uh, when the Samaritan sees him, he's moved with compassion right. in the moment. He has a conscience that is shaped and formed to be able to act. Yeah. So uh, a lot of that is going to depend upon where you are in that. Uh, so you're going to have the sort of the sort of, um, the sort of uh, uh, mandate Mm -hmm. that would be upon, say, someone who is a doctor or a nurse or a first responder would be very different than somebody who's a neighbor. And somebody who's a neighbor would be very different from somebody who is, uh, if you're in a situation where you are the one making the decision, then what you need to make sure of is that you are making those decisions on the basis of, okay what is best and just, not on using people created in the image of God yeah. as something to, to, to call it. cause. It's always easy uh, in, in any sort of world. And this is not just in the political world or the cultural world. You can, again, do this in a workplace. right? It, to find that person right. or those people, that's the problem. yeah, And that's what I'm worried about. And then you just sort of focus everything on those people yep. in, in a way that becomes um, not only becomes cruel to them, but it, it becomes very um, reshaping in bad ways of your own heart and oh, psyche. Completely, completely.
0: Okay. Should we uh, take a couple... Where's Rebecca? Oh, there's Rebecca. Yep. So, these are the two with microphones. Uh, if you've got a question, put your hand up and they'll come and uh, give you the shot and a free book if you're the first.
2: Hi. So as a student in a public high school, how should I deal with unbiblical teaching on sexuality in my classes?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's uh, a couple of things uh, there. One of those things is to know what you believe. Uh, and, And so to to be really shaped and discipled in Scripture in terms of what the Scripture teaches about sexuality so that you're able to bear witness to the truth while at the same time understanding that you are not the first Christian who's lived in a time of sexual confusion and chaos. Uh, As a matter of fact... That, that sort of status quo normal in the New Testament. If you, if you think of all of the things that are being dealt with in terms of uh, sexual confusion and, and chaos. So to be able to make sure that you are not, um, and so some of that's going to be, and this will probably come up several times tonight, some of that is going to be identifying where's your particular point of vulnerability. So are you the sort of person who is more likely to sort of accommodate and to Romans chapter 12, conform to the pattern of the world into unbiblical ideas and, and, and inclinations because you want people to think well of you? Or are you the kind of a person who's more likely to see people who disagree with you as being irredeemable? Mm. Uh, so kind of know that in terms of your own sense of vulnerability and be able to shore that up. So if you're in the first category, to be sort of reminding yourself what it means to stand with conviction. If you're in the second category, to remind yourself constantly, hey, I'm here as a missionary. Uh, And and so to to know that about yourself. I'm Bob,
3: and uh, I'm perhaps, I am one of the oldest people here tonight, perhaps the oldest person here. I'm 84 years old Uh and I've never seen this country in the shape that it is now. I have two very quick examples of what has been encouraged tonight. One is to disagree without being disagreeable. Many of us saw an example of that in the first uh, campaign for Barack Obama, when Senator John McCain, a person whose politics differ from mine, uh, in his campaign meeting one night, a woman stood up and was t- saying nasty, bad things about Obama. And he said, no, no. He is a good and decent man. We simply disagree on several important points. Mm-hmm. Another is judge not that ye be not judged. Mm-hmm. Um, I think especially don't judge some, someone on what they have done in the past. Uh, I was told several years ago that Amazing Grace was one of the most popular and well-known of all faith-based music. Mm-hmm. How many people know that the person who wrote that song was formerly the captain of a slave ship? Right. right. And so I think that's a good example to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. My question is, I firmly believe in what you're saying tonight, but I think please don't forget that from the pulpit, and I hope every preacher in every pulpit throughout the country preaches on this subject, but don't forget you're preaching to some people who may not have the strength of belief that you do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that I hope that you say, don't do something because it's said for you do it in First Timothy or Corinthians. Do it because it's the right thing to do. And if you know human nature, you know you don't get things done by calling someone a bad name. Mm-hmm. So I hope that you talked with so many preachers, and we really need someone to lead us out of this morass in which we now find ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, was my suggestion worthwhile? (laughs) (laughs) Of
2: of course. (laughs) Of
0: course. (laughs) You do, okay, I'm going to let, go ahead. You got one back there, Rebecca? Rebecca?
2: Thank you. Hi, good evening. Thank you so much for what you've shared tonight. Um, I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, where do you draw the line between the separation of church and state, and how does that advocate you in, in your position um, when it comes to certain policy areas? Well, when, when
1: people talk about, I, I firmly believe in the separation of church and state, uh, because I think that Jesus taught that. Uh, when he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which is God's. And also, uh, when you have the distinction between the church in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and and the world. So I think there are different areas of responsibility for the church and the state. So, uh, for instance, um, you're going to have, when I'm dealing with somebody who has uh, committed murder, as a representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the church, my primary, uh, my primary message to that person is going to be one of mercy, repent, uh, believe. That's not the job of the state. job of the state is to execute justice and, and to make sure. So if I, as a representative of the church, attempt to imprison someone, I don't have the authority to do that. And if the state decides to forgive someone of their sins and to pronounce that, they don't have the authority to do that either. So I think there are distinctions in terms of the, of the sword is given to the state, not to the church. The mission is given to the church, not to the state. So I'm not to expect the state to do the job of the church, and I'm not to expect the church to do the job of the state. That doesn't mean, though, that you have a separation of conscience from statecraft. So what we want is for people to have their, um, their minds, their consciences, their hearts, they, they bring the way that those are, are shaped and formed into their areas of responsibility, which means that you can't cordon off in a human heart uh, areas of, of, of how people are shaped and formed in terms of their religious convictions. So uh, if you think about, for instance, um, when it comes to say there's a sex trafficking issue, human trafficking issue in your uh, community, you may come to the table and say, as a Christian, I am motivated to speak to this issue because uh, I have an understanding of these women who are being trafficked as being created in the image of God. Uh, You're not coming in and saying, The reason that we're dealing with this is turning your Bibles to 1 John 2 uh, because you're dealing with people who don't accept that authority. But you're coming and say, this is why I care about that. So in in the same way, I deal a lot in adoption, foster care, orphan care. I care about that issue primarily because uh, I have an understanding of what it means to be adopted into uh, the family of God and to be an ex-orphan myself uh, spiritually. Uh, I work with a lot of people who don't have that understanding. Well, we can be shaped and formed by different sorts of reasons why we care and have an area of overlap uh, that's there. And so I think it's not separation of church and state is true and is important, but it's not separation of morality or a sense of justice or a sense of conscience from
2: statecraft. Yeah. Uh, When I first got saved, I was mentored by an older brother and the way he would give the gospel to people really spoke to me, because he would always deflect those comments that were personal against him, and he would say, your disagreement is not with me. Your disagreement is what is written in this book right here, and it mm-hmm. is God's word. And that really spoke to me, and it just helps to remember that. When you're when you given the gospel, and they, when you're insulted and all these things happen, just lay it back at that. Yeah, and I kept listening all night trying to come up with uh, hoping that I would hear some examples of dialogue between, you know, what do you say when they bring up this? What do you say when they talk about that? And what about that old pen that says, what would Jesus do? Mm -hmm. Why not just say, what would Jesus say? How would he act? Mm -hmm. How would would he sidestep this whole thing and bring up a heart issue? Like you say, like the woman at the well. Go call your husband. Mm -hmm. If you read the Gospels, read Jesus' words, read every situation in which he was in, you'll learn so much. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe you could expand on that too.
1: Yeah, I I think that the difficulty comes in the fact that Jesus is relating in what seem to be completely divergent ways uh, often. And the reason for that is because the scripture says he understands what is in man, in human nature. He also understands what's going on with that particular person who's in front of him at the moment. So that's one of the reasons why you have Jesus responding to uh, the rich young ruler in a way that's totally different from the way that he responds to the woman at the well. And he's responding to her totally differently than he's responding to the two brothers who are arguing about their inheritance. And Jesus says, that doesn't have anything to do with me. Uh, Well, what's the common theme there? Uh, The common theme there is Jesus is paying attention to what is going on in terms of that person that he is talking to at the moment. Um, We don't have the sort of immediate insight into those things that Jesus has. But we're followers of of Christ, we're we're to have the the life of Christ lived out in us, which means we're paying attention to those things and we're seeking to ask those sorts of questions, which is often to say, sometimes the sorts of things that are being asked of me at the moment are not what they appear to be. And your example that you gave is exactly right, of that uh, older uh, brother in Christ who understood it and knew there's usually a backstory, uh, especially to hostility. And one of the things that I've found is in almost every case, and I deal with completely non-Christian people every day and sometimes with really, really hostile non-Christian people. And what I have found is almost every really hostile non-Christian that I talk to has some sort of of horrible, horrible Mm. uh, story that relates to the church or Mm. relates to a religious person. So I have to remind myself, this person who may be very angry is not angry at me. So I'm not gonna respond the way that I would. It's just sort of a visceral uh, kind of response. This person is actually maybe not even talking to me. She's talking to that parent who Mm. uh, disowned her or to that religious aunt who mistreated her, or to that uh, church uh, youth pastor who mistreated her, or or somebody there in the past, and to have that understanding, and to say, what I'm going to do is not necessarily try to uh, prove to this person that I'm not the kind of person that you think I am. Instead, I'm just not going to be the kind of person that he or she thinks I am, I'm gonna be a representative of Jesus Christ. Mm. So sometimes what that means is coming in and and having to make sometimes some very difficult decisions that are, is this person offended by the gospel or is this person offended by me? And and sometimes it's hard to tell. But what you wanna make sure of is not that people aren't offended is that they are offended by the right things. Mm. So what they're offended by is what the New Testament calls the scandal of the gospel, Christ and him crucified, rather than some ancillary uh, sort of an issue or because I'm coming into this in a self-protecting kind of way, which is what a lot of this, Mm. uh, you you know, hostility is, Mm. is I'm protecting Uh, something about myself Mm -hmm. and sometimes we don't know and and sometimes you have to say there's some encounters you're going to have where you're going to come away and say I mishandled that Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I mean you're gonna do that Uh, you're gonna do that not just with people in your communities you're gonna do that with people in your own families Mm -hmm. there are all sorts of times when uh, I've had to come to one of my kids and say I overreacted to that last night couple times I've had to come in and say, I underreacted to that last night. (laughs) Uh, We're we're, we're going to to do that. But I think aspiring to, let me try to figure out as best I can what actually is taking place uh, in front of me right now. Uh, So I've had people um, who have, uh, for instance, I have had people who have... uh, ask me questions where it becomes very clear in talking to that person that I'm dealing with somebody who is self-loathing and who believes that that person can never be loved by God or, or received by God. I'm going to treat that person very differently than I do the person who believes that God can't judge me for living my life the way that I live it. Those are very different situations. And the devil doesn't work in one way. The devil works in two ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, He works with deception, you will not surely die, and he works with accusation. Mm -hmm. So you have to hit both of those two things at the same time and try to figure out what is taking place at the moment. So, uh, you know, I often tell people, Nobody is more pro-choice than the devil on the way into the abortion clinic and nobody's more pro-life than the devil on the way out of the abortion clinic mm-hmm. because the way, that, the way the devil works is both there is no accountability for your actions and then once something has been done, you're not the kind of person who could ever be forgiven by God.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And speak, well, you've got to speak to both of those two things and, and thankfully we've got the message of the cross, which deals with both God's justice and God's mercy and love mm. at the same time.
0: Okay, I'm going to ask the last question, and it's actually somebody's question out there, but they just didn't get the microphone.
2: Okay,
0: uh, Do you, Are I'm you a psychic? Or? I'm a psychic. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm a school teacher, okay? I'm a school teacher, been asked to be on, on a team of people who, as they recreate architecturally a new building... It has been decided that that new building will have transgender or or genderless bathrooms. I'm this Christ follower trying to win that battle but lose that battle. What do I do now? The building gets built. I'm now that public teacher. I have to implement, enforce something that I disagree with deeply at a conviction level. What's my posture? When's the time to draw the line to say, I quit, I can't do this. When's the time to just cave and say, "Well, it's the system." I've got to, how How do we navigate those kind of real life situations? Yeah. Well,
1: if you look at look at for instance uh, the book of Daniel, at, you have got several different models of engagement taking place in the book of Daniel, sort of right in a row. So uh, Daniel and the other uh, captives, Hebrew mm-hmm. captives, are, are there in Babylon. Uh, there able to work with, to advise Nebuchadnezzar mm-hmm. to, to work within the kingdom. When uh, the, the message comes down, you must eat the king's food, uh, there's at first mm-hmm. the level of let's seek to persuade, let's have right. a, a, a level of, uh, uh, a level of, uh, of uh, negotiation, compromise, yeah, negotiation yeah. yeah, that takes place. Well, why don't you look mm-hmm. and see this? That's not the posture that Daniel... Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego take uh, when it comes to uh, worshiping the golden statue. Right. Then it is we will refuse to do this, and we will bear the yeah. uh, we will bear the punishment. The other things, I mean, even the fact that you have these names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are Babylonian right. names, right. Uh, th- that's not an issue that is that is fought against. Mm. This mm. issue is. So I think what you have to ask is. Where are the areas that are going to be compelling me to sin or to act against conscience? uh, And then those are things that I can't do. Mm. What are the other, what are there areas where there are going to be decisions made that wouldn't be the decisions that I would make that I can submit to without, uh, I'm simply carrying out decisions that have already been made. There's no confusion as though I'm the one who's making those Mm, decisions some of those are going to be really bright lines where you're going to know that that's the case. Some of those are going to be situations that fall under Romans 14, where you're going to have people who may have different levels of conscience. And and what the Apostle Paul says, don't bind one another's consciences. So to to act against conscience is to sin. Uh, Some of those things are going to be sort of Mm person-specific. So I don't think in terms of the, it sounds like this is somebody who was in a process of deciding how do we arrange mm-hmm. uh, this building. So mm-hmm. whatever you think about that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: she lost or he mm-hmm. lost that decision, okay? Now the question is, is this something, you know, most of us submit to a thousand things every day that we wouldn't do right. uh, if we were the ones making those decisions. Yep. But then there are going to be other things where I would say, if I do that, I'm going to have to be denying Jesus Christ. Those are going to be the things that I I can't do.
0: And to be in a church family where theoretically, I don't think this is the case, theoretically two teachers up against the same scenarios, one's conscience pushes them one way, one the other, and they live together in peace. One one set of parents pulls their kid out of that school, another parent seeks to be people of peace within that school and to live in a church community that recognizes the difficulty of navigating those decisions yeah. and has a respectful, yeah. you know, engagement. And, and we
1: that. have to do that all the time because there are going to be some things in scripture clearly revealed, binding on everybody. Yep. So you can't say, eh, I'm married, but I, I think I'm going to tender account and start dating. Yeah. yeah, what do y'all think about that? Pray right, for me. Right. Uh, no, you, you, you need to be. <laughs> draw a line. Uh, There are going to be some other things where we have different kinds of consciences, and we don't. You know, one family uh, may think it's awful to celebrate Halloween. Another right. family thinks it's great to go trick or treating. You, you're not going to. Uh, you're not going to, this person shouldn't call these people occultists, and and these people shouldn't accuse these people of being legalists. They they ought to be able to understand each other's consciences and love each other. And then in the middle, there are going to be some areas where there are principles that are given in scripture, but those are things that are going to be lived out in different ways. Mm. So the Bible says, for instance, that you are to um, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a, that's a principle that ought, to, uh, that, that ought to manifest itself in terms of every way that you're living together as a family, but it doesn't necessarily say whether your children should be in public school, private school, home that's school, right. whatever. Right. So the principles are there, and people may live those out in different ways, and we, yeah. we, we
0: learn to bear with one another on those yeah. things. You help us a lot, Dr. Moore. I appreciate all that you've done. Um, can we thank him for all that he's <laughs> done? His... And guys, let's, we uh, stand up with me and uh, our worship team is going to come. We're going to close this night out by worshiping the one who has given us both grace and truth. And uh, I'd love for us to be able to pray together and then we're going to, we're going to sing to him. All right, let's pray. So, Lord, um, we are your people and yet we are a people in exile. Uh, we're a people trying to figure out how to live as strangers on this earth and yet as friends with those that we're trying to reach. So it's difficult for us to know, Lord, how to position ourselves, how to posture ourselves at times, how to even make decisions. So, Lord, we're looking to you, but you are the Lord of all truth and the Lord of all grace. And so we worship you because we know you are our North Star. You are the one that we've got to keep our focus on. So we do that now in this way, confessing together with one voice, all that we believe to be true about you. We honor you in this way, Lord. Lead us and guide us in grace and truth. We pray in your name. Amen.